0: Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.
1: Ah, there's that music. It's wonderful to hear that music again at this hour of a Sunday morning. It is. Two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 R, and we've got a massive show for you. I'm Anthony Boxshaw.
0: And I'm Bron Burton, offsite.
2: And Rex Habber, at home.
1: Hello, hey, Rex. welcome, team. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh we've got and also a wonderful uh three in fact I I came into I'm actually the only one in the studio and of course as you can tell the others are off site and I came in this morning you two, and was wonderfully surprised to see uh Lord Timothy Esquire OBE <laughs> MBE CBE Ao OA, AEE, all those things in the Triple R studio in 3D and there he was and he's looking healthy and well and Wonderful, as you can tell from that beautiful show that you did. Hi, Tim. <laughs> <She said. laughs> uh, dear, and you both look well.
2: Yes. yes, survived. Survived COVID. All right.
0: I can't see you though, Rex, but I can see Anne. And where's
1: my <laughs> there we go. We'll let you figure that one out. <laughs> hey, and Bron, we have a massive show today. Clearly, uh, we've, gonna, we've, we've got uh, Rex, and Rex has been hunting. And Oh, there hey, he is, there and we can Rex. see him now. Rex has been hunting, and uh, Rex, you've been hunting for something in particular, haven't you?
2: Well, we've been out um, mowing the lawn, as we do in spare time. Should spend more time well, at home, actually, mowing the lawn, but there
1: you go. We're going to, And we're yep. going to hear about... Rex's latest uh, mowing sojourns and what he's mowing for, after about quarter past nine, at um, at half past, um, we don't to talk about uh, uh, this year. Uh, um I'm going to focus um, when I'm on each month on climate adaptations, um, you know, ocean ones, marine, you know, marine ocean ones or coastal ones. And we're going to start with one of the impacts, the, the lesser known impacts of climate change. It's already starting, um, called ocean acidification. And, um, and Dr. Suanne Watson from JCU and a few other places is joining us later in the show to talk about that. And Bron, you also, awesome, a new book.
0: Look, this is the great thing about Radio Maranara. We pride ourselves on being eclectic and covering anything and everything to do. Like we, That's our thing for all things wet and salty. And today is a perfect example of that because, of course, we're kicking off with Rex's segment, um, you know, looking into the intricacies of maritime archaeology and then we're going into climate change. Then we're finishing with a great segment. Um, Anth, what do you get when you cross Russell Coit with uh, AFL Essendon legend Terry Danaher? Can you picture that?
1: I can't even I can't even imagine it actually. So but I tell you what it would be helpful and also useless at the same time. <laughs>
0: So, okay, so what you get is a goofy larrikin called Barry Jeffrey and with his mate Roy McCoy. So, picture again Russell Coit meeting um, this time comedian Anthony Lemo Lehman. They're the unwitting stars of new release, The Idiot's Guide to Anglin and Danglin. Oh, I think my coffee's just. I been just brought. saw your coffee there. Well, John, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, technical producer. Um, the Idiot's Guide to Anglin and Danglin. And I'm going to, for the benefit, I'll, I'll put this up on our Facebook page just so people can see.
1: Oh, we can see this. You, of course, listeners people, can't yet see this.
0: People you, Anthony Rex, but I'll pop this on our Facebook page. Love um, it. The, the artwork's fantastic. Kind of picture, kind of Weg meets Tamburg, I guess. Yeah, actually. Um, yeah, so yeah, we're going to be that. speaking um, with author Drew Howell about the adventures of Barry and Roy through what's ultimately a satirical and amusing guide
1: to fishing. So, <laughs> um... so <laughs> wait, hang on, let me just recount this. So today's show, we're we're doing shipwrecks, ocean acidification, and shellfish, and fishing. How can you get? Yeah. Let's, you know, the first news item is I'm going to throw this in before we get to the weather, um, Bron. And I know you've got the weather and ready to go, but let's throw in surfing because it is topical and it is newsworthy today and I don't know whether you've caught up. And, of course, we'll have to talk to Dr Surf in coming weeks. But the Easter classic is not at Bells. It's gone. The bloody New South. So Newies, Newcastle, they've pinched it. So that's big surfing news and it's going to cause consternation. I think it's going to be a challenge for that local community down there too because that's two years. So they'll have Bells, apparently, but they won't be having it at that time of the year so it oh, won't okay. open the international won't be the world championships opening there all this stuff so new south Wales has pinched it
0: <sighs> interesting no, we will ages. follow this one up with yeah, dr surf definitely. in coming weeks this is news to me i didn't know about I, this. it only
1: i only saw it this morning it literally came out overnight okay somewhere it was, some other country it was last night oh, was it okay
2: there we go Channel two.
1: anyway got some weather
0: i'm hearing christ have shut the borders <laughs> Shut the borders Alright, weather. Um, today, uh, cloudy, 19, possible rainfall. It's certainly been raining most of the morning where I am in the southeast, so a yeah, uh, slight chance of showers or drizzle about the city in the western suburbs, grading to a high chance in the east. Shower activity most likely during the morning, continuing throughout the day near the Dandenong's winds southwesterly, 15 to 25 kilometres an hour, turning southerly in the early afternoon. Ew. And that's basically it for rain right through till Friday. Tomorrow, cloudy and 19, a little bit of drizzle, but not much really. And and uh, southerly winds 20 to 30 kilometres now. So still a bit blowy, but um, but dry mostly. Tuesday looks like the peak. Oh, Tuesday and Wednesday. look at. Well, actually now Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, peak of the bunch. Mm. So so middle of the week's going to be very nice. Um, Tuesday, 26 and sunny. Wednesday, 30 and sunny. And um, those winds still sort of around easterly, but starting to shift to the north by easterly. Wednesday. Easterly. It's weird.
1: It's a climate yeah. thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's okay. odd, isn't it? And then... Thursday, 30, partly cloudy and winds nor So, yeah, you're right. Easterly winds sort That's of prevailing weird. through the week but shifting from the south to the north. But, yeah, look, th- that sandwich part of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mid to high 20s, up to 30, it's going to be very nice. And then Friday, finishing off the week, possible shower, 23, um, still northerly um, cool. and uh, then shifting around to the southwest during the morning and then back down to 20 for next weekend. Who knows? But anyway, that's the forecast and the tide times. Um, the predicted tide times for today for Port Phillip Heads: first low tide at oh, that's already happened, 1:05 a.m.
1: Oh damn, missed that. <laughs> I was waiting, I was there, but oh no, I missed it.
0: Planning to go for that night dive. Yeah. First high yeah, tide at 6:55 a.m. So we've had that one miss as that. well.
1: Missed Damn it, missed that.
0: <laughs> Second low tide at 1:37 p.m.
1: I still got then- time.
0: Yeah, you got time for that one uh, with the slack water, oh I don't know, four what do you reckon, Rex? 430? Halfway
2: between them halfway between
0: tides. Yeah, okay, between seven and one thirty. So you know, around ten
2: ish. Slack water diving, very nice.
0: Yep.
1: Oh yeah, the slack will be in about fifty minutes.
0: Yes. Yes. And then the second high tide at eight twenty three. So PM. I don't know, about four o'clock this afternoon. Uh, that's it for the
1: nice time hey you know it's just I've I've got to point it out because I know that we should take every opportunity to point this out but gosh these La Nina summers they're bizarre aren't they they're very mm-hmm. different the summers after a La Nina very different we've been talking about this for 18 months I know we were pre you know kind of talking about the Indian Ocean Dipole and the La Nina and they're coming together And it's just this kind of when you think about it the climatic scale stuff it's 18 months this has changed the way our climate's been for 18 months Anyway, hey, you got a couple of other quick newsy bits, Brian?
0: I've got a couple of things. One is a couple of shout-outs um, for two listeners who contacted us, um, particularly over the summer break. I meant to do this last week, but we were um, running hammer and tongs all all, all Sunday. Um, we had uh, Philippa who sent us a photo of uh, what turned out to be an eggshell mass, oh, yes. of a type of shell called a cart rut shell and um, this is a great thing, you know, with this wonderful network that we have in being able to identify, you know, I can't identify everything that comes in but i'm pretty sure i can work out who can and in this case it was a combination of thumb and neil blake who instantly knew what it was <laughs> um so thanks Philippa, for sending that one in she just came across it on her beach walk and went what on earth is this that was cool too. yeah so those egg masses look they do look a little bit like barnacles they're not like your standard egg you know the soft um this this particular type of uh, egg mass is actually quite hard they're a bit purplish um, and they do look a little bit like barnacles and Mast, but um, but not so. And to Cliff Davis. Yeah, I was going to say. Hopefully, takes, gonna, yeah, we're going to mention
1: Cliff. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So Cliff
0: is. Um, I still claim Cliff as being Triple R's most remote subscriber. Absolutely. Because he spends most of his life, or at least a fair portion of it, in Antarctica. <laughs> and um, so he sent us some fantastic photos, and we're going to pop those on our Facebook page. Hoping to catch up with Cliff in the weeks ahead, because he is down on, I think, Mawson Station? Oh, I thought he said Casey. I think oh, it was it Casey, Casey in the
1: background of the photos of the boat. Yeah. Yes, you're right. It yeah. is his
0: it's Casey. Um, and he's down there for the winter. So he's down there for quite some time. Oh, so we're going to be catching up with Cliff to talk about life in Antarctica, um, what it is that he does. and and yeah, just, just get the get the picture from someone who's down there.
1: Oh, they, they, those photos, they were they were sensational when you get them up. Listeners, have a look on the Facebook page because they were just fantastic.
0: I just love the fact we have a a, a triple R subscriber in Antarctica. Really.
1: <laughs> Hunter. I'm here. You're there. I can still see you, which is wonderful. We haven't lost you. Now <laughs> for once <laughs> over the summer. You took your lawnmower out, and I'll get you to describe what your lawnmower is, and you started looking for something under the bottom of the ocean. So far, yes, right, yes, what were you yes, doing? Yes. Uh,
2: I had the, uh, took my side scan out. Oh, It was actually uh, last week with a, a friend. So we've been searching for a wreck called the Tommy Dodd, which was a little catch that came over from Tasmania in 1877 to pick up um, a load of mining machinery for a gold mine in northern Tasmania.
1: 1877. So this- Okay. Yeah. And so a catch.
2: Little a little bit. catch, so two master. Yep. Four and a half rigged. So um this little vessel was was called it's seventeen tons. So that's a cubic capacity that the vessel could uh could store, but it doesn't mean the actual weight it could store. So um this was it was, was forty eight feet long by twelve by uh, five feet deep. So this remarkably small vessel for thirty five tons of mining equipment. <laughs>
0: So would so, it be the equivalent, Rex, when you're talking about, you know, describing it, were they kind of the working vessels of the day? Would it be like the equivalent of like a small truck?
2: Yeah, the semi-trailers of the day, they were, they okay. were everywhere. They were covered Port Phillip Bay, they were up and down the coast, they were across Bass Strait, they were just everywhere, ubiquitous. So, they were, yeah, they were the semi-trailers, did all the hard work uh, carrying freight all, all, over, the, uh, all over Australia. So this little vessel came over and got the contract to take the the machinery back down to tasmania and it was only a small only had a small cargo catch a hatch so they couldn't actually there was a 13 ton flywheel and they couldn't fit it inside to get it down low to keep your balance keep it nice uh well ballasted so the the captain decided to put it, up, strap it on the deck <laughs> sorry i just
1: can't it's like we've got a huge really massively weighty thing instead of putting it underneath let's just hang it off the side because i'm sure it'll be all fine you
2: know really yeah raise the center of gravity <laughs>
1: oh so they stick this 13 ton piece of equipment on the deck
2: on the deck yeah yeah and they're really going easy. to
1: go across one of the most treacherous pieces of water in the globe that's just getting out rip was tricky
2: enough and never oh. been through there on a rough day <laughs> So this, this little vessel was at, um, at Melbourne, even the, uh, the mariners in town were talking about how, how dangerous the craft was. And uh-huh. The vessel left in mid-May and was, uh, that was the last apparently the last anybody saw of it, except for the a fisherman at uh, St. Leonard's a week later, and he said he saw this vessel turn up just offshore and uh, just turn turtle and went straight to the bottom. Oh. So it was actually a witness in the. Uh, the so parties. hang on,
1: they didn't even make it out of the heads.
2: No, ah, no, they
1: didn't even make it. Oh. for St. Leonard's, hey, how on earth were they? Like cause honestly, is that one of those moments where you kind of go, "What was the captain on?" You know, saying yeah. that's fine. Was he yeah. Yeah, it'd be like what equivalent would be like me sticking a massive, I don't know, a huge massive three-ton block of concrete on the roof of my car and wondering why it was hard to drive. Yeah.
2: Well, you'll probably see that on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> <do> you? <Yeah. laughs>
1: oh, no. And sorry, I shouldn't laugh because people would have died, of course. But that's Yeah, that's
2: and two, two crew. That was a, oh. never saw them again either. So it's just a complete act of stupidity and uh, just beyond belief. And so you guys so, are
1: out there having a look for this thing? Oh,
2: well, yeah. Well, um, it disappeared, obviously, in 19, 1877. And two years later, fishermen were fishing and getting their nets and hooks Snagged on this, on this site. So they, the ports and harbors vessel went round and found it. They dragged a wire across the bottom and eventually found this site. Um, and it was bought by a Williamstown businessman who then employed a diver to go down and they salvaged, well, most of the, the mining equipment. Ah, uh, okay. So this wreck was then just abandoned to, uh, to the elements.
1: And they, so, they hopefully took a larger flat-bottom barge for the 13-ton piece of equipment when they salvaged it.
2: Well, the thing was that the mine, the the, mine, the machinery was going to, proved to be unprofitable anyway, so it was, it was a complete waste of time.
3: God, no.
2: So I've been, this is one of the wrecks I've sort of had an interest in for years and years and years. So we first did a search back in 2009, because there, there was a notice in the uh, newspaper giving a rough position where this vessel w- was found. So we, I used that as a basis. And uh, when our well, so first side scan search back in 2009, we ca- covered an area of 500 by 500 metres. I uh, found a couple of scallop dredges and that was about it. So <laughs> put that on hold for a while and we went. 2014, I fired up again, got slightly better side scanning equipment. And uh, did another grid search, but to the uh, west, of where we did the previous one. Again, another 500 by 500 meters. Again, nothing. Maybe a couple of sticks or something like that. Really. Uh...
1: And this is where the mowing the lawn bit comes in, because your side scan is hanging over the back of the boat, and you're just driving backwards and forwards and backwards <laughs> and forwards. <laughs>
0: did you have a good? Did you have a good feeling about it on that particular day, Rex?
2: Oh uh, yeah. Or we're you hope, just kind of hoping. Just hope, you know we you least expect it, expect it sometimes. And then we did, um, we went out last Monday and did another search again, another 500 by 500 meters square. So eventually we'll build up a uh, like a kilometer by a kilometer yeah. search grid running 30 meter lanes. And at the bottom of the last turn, before we started heading north on the last leg, we uh, picked up a small target. So we haven't had a gr- chance to ground truth this, but it looks, Look,
1: certainly something nice and solid and wreckish. Ooh. I love so, that. Uh, I love that technical term, nice, <laughs> solid and wreckish. That, that listeners, well, is coming from one of Australia's greatest wrecks, uh, wreck hunters. Um,
0: <laughs> so what does that mean, Rex? Like how would you be able to tell the difference between something that you're thinking, okay, I think this might be a wreck, to, oh, this is just a pile of, you know, this is a bommie, this is a pile of rocks or something like
2: well, that? Generally, you, you find, you'll find some sort of straight lines in a wreck. So the shadows cast. So if you imagine you're sitting at home with a desk lamp, and you turn your desk lamp on a pen or something other on the other side, of the pen will be a shadow cast. Yeah. And that gives you an image of that's what side scan sonar is. It gives you an image like a shadow image of what's down there. And sometimes you'll see a straight line, or sometimes it, it just it will be a ship shape. But it generally be a bright reflection as well.
3: Ah.
1: If, now
2: anybody, you, if, I, if any of you two have ever been pregnant...
1: Javon's <laughs> <then>, uh, <laughs> got a hand up. I haven't.
2: <laughs> and you had a look at the ultrasound. Yeah. And you yeah. show, showing your husband the ultrasound and said, there's baby baby Joe. And your husband looks at her just completely blankly. Saying, there's the head. There's the legs. And you just can't and interpret it. yeah you spent... Spend enough time looking at site scanning data, you can look at stuff and say, yeah, that's something. Uh, now, that's you, use okay. the
1: term, you used the term ground truth um, before, which means actually you head out and actually dive on it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it, that's yeah, it. Yeah.
2: So the primary objective of the day was just to collect the data because if you start looking for sites and you think you've found something and jump over the side, you've lost a couple of hours searching. So we, ground, we just collect data for ground truthing afterwards. So that's that's
1: it so far. So I'll report later on. Hopefully it's good news, but it's very exciting. The Tommy Dodd, okay. Tommy Dodd, yeah. The great, um, uh, yeah, well, he would have been charged by by WorkSafe, of course, the captain, (laughs) posthumously for such appalling choices. And thank goodness we actually have maritime industrial regulations now that would not allow that kind of thing to happen. But, um, you know, great. Well, hey, you're going to tell us when you've come back. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Tommy you see Dullard. me turning up for gold rings and
0: uh, gold <laughs> You've been promising us that for years, Rex.
1: <laughs> uh, do you? Oh, Rex Hunter, what a wonderful story! Thank you so much. I oh, love it. We're, I've, we've been doing it for twenty. What is this? this is our twenty-fifth year, Bron? Isn't it? 25th, 25th year of Radio Mariner. We've been covering what at the time was um, global warming way back when and, and has, has been talked about with various other terms. And, of course, we now talk about climate change more broadly. We've been covering that the entire time. And one of the things that uh, – and, and a number of the different um, impacts we've been covering. So this year, what I thought I'd do is talk a little bit, yes, about impacts, particularly of some of the lesser-known Climate change um, impacts the things that you know are definitely happening, but we you know people don't talk about as much. We all know about sea level rise, but maybe not so much about ocean acidification. That's one of the poor cousins of climate impacts. And we'll also talk about adaptations because there are adaptations occurring already. Human-based ones and other ones, and so to join us in this conversation today, it's wonderful. We're welcoming Dr. Sueann Watson, who's a senior research fellow at the ARC Centre for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University, and the Queensland, and she is also a Queensland Museum senior curator for marine invertebrates, based at the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Townsville, and she joins us live online from Far North Queensland this morning. Good Good morning Sue and welcome.
3: Good morning, thank you.
1: It's great. Thanks for joining us so early up there because of course you guys don't do daylight savings because it fades the curtains and it's <laughs> wonderful to have you online. Um, can we just start with a little bit of the kind of 101 about ocean acidification? I mean it, it, the name itself kind of describes a bit what happens but what is it? Like what, what actually does the ocean actually get more acid?
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is getting a little bit more acidic. So all the carbon dioxide that humans are putting into the atmosphere since really the onset of the Industrial Revolution about 250 years ago has gone into the atmosphere. But the ocean and the air are in equilibrium. So what happens is is that the ocean absorbs some of this carbon dioxide like a giant sponge. Hmm. So the ocean absorbs about a third to a quarter of all the carbon dioxide or CO2 emissions that we create. So while this is good news Mm -hmm. for us on land, because it actually reduces some of our sort of land-based impacts of global warming, unfortunately... Uh, when dioxide gets into the water in the oceans, it reacts with water and forms carbonic acid. So this is the acid that causes ocean acidification. And,
1: and it really the pH, the, 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 the acidity of the ocean, and I, I mean, I'm not doubting at all that, that you described that process really well, the pH of the ocean is actually getting more acidic over time.
3: Yes, that's right. So the pH is a scale that we measure acidity and alkalinity. And what we're seeing is that in the last 250 years, we've actually measured a 0.1 decrease in pH units. So that's a real measurable change that scientists have noticed.
1: And we should now, we should that- point out for people, for listeners, a decrease might sound good, but actually in a pH scale, that means becoming more acid. And that's yes. not good.
3: Yes, that's right. So 1 on the scale is very acidic and 14 is very alkaline. So if we see a decrease, decrease, we're moving towards more acidic conditions. And also the scale is a logarithmic one. So while 0.1 might not seem like very much, it's actually equivalent to a 30% increase in acidity. So a 30% increase
1: in hydrogen ions in seawater. And so then we jump to your other area of your work, which is, is, is mollusks, shellfish, things that build shells around themselves in the ocean. And, of course, it won't surprise people that since we now understand ocean acidity is all about the chemistry there, then, therefore, that must change the chemistry of how shellfish can build their shells. Is that one of the impacts?
3: Yes, that's right. So that's one of the impacts that was discovered quite early on when scientists first thought about ocean acidification. It's a relatively young field, maybe sort of about the last 15 years and that we've been really, sort of scientists have been really thinking about this and of course more and more studies have happened over the last sort of 10 to 5 years. And so we've found, sort of scientists have found that Animals that make shells like mollusks, so clams and mussels and oysters and snails, they're actually finding it more difficult to make shells when ocean conditions are more acidic. So if we set up experiments and we have ocean conditions that are projected for the mid to the end of this century, based on our normal emission scenarios that come to outside, we're finding that those creatures have more trouble building their shells, especially mm. in those early life stages like the juveniles who are just making their shell for the first time, who have this thin shell. Those are the stages that are most likely to struggle.
1: Wow. And so when you say, so so you've done those kind of tests in the lab where you've kind of projected, okay, this is what it' will look like at the end of the century if we don't you know get our emissions down. Can I actually just at that point, clearly what the, what what the solution here is to get emissions down? Okay so let's just state that and we'll state that over and over and over again. I'll <laughs> we'll make that point. But so these experiments are you know if we don't, or what's locked into the system. The shelf, the shellfish, can't make their shells or do they make them in weird ways or, you know, brittle or what happens?
3: Yeah, so actually finding sort of at at those, the higher emissions trajectories, so if we keep going as we're going, like we have for the past sort of 20 years or so, If we keep going on this trajectory, then for very vulnerable shellfish, like sea butterflies around uh, cold waters like Antarctica, they actually have very thin, very delicate shells. So their shells are dissolving and they wouldn't be able to make those very well at all. Whereas if we have other animals that are maybe a little bit more robust, we might just see a thinning of their shell. Or for some creatures even, they're able to modify the way that they produce their shells. So we might not see so many changes in those species. So we are seeing variation among species in, in the ability to make their shell. But yes, for some of those Sort of, um, so, for example, with oysters in the early life stages, what we're seeing is sort of shell pitting and, and shell deformity uh, at acidic conditions.
1: And so, um, wow, that's I mean, it's quite remarkable to think. And of course, they will have evolved to produce their shells in the conditions that are changing slowly. Ocean acidification would have been changing slowly over time. So, and now, of course, we're changing it faster. Are there non? Are there other? Like, I can see that chemical kind of impact very clearly. You know, you need the, the the acidity of the water to be a certain level to get the right chemicals in to make your shell. But I also understand ocean acidification is, is, is looks like it's affecting behaviour.
3: Yes, that's right. So that was quite a surprising finding. So probably uh, about maybe six or seven years ago now, we really started to look into what other effects my ocean acidification have on marine invertebrates like mollusks and shellfish. And one of those effects that we found was that if we place these animals into these elevated carbon dioxide conditions, we're actually seeing changes in their behaviour. And most of the time, those changes appear to be negative. Uh, so, no. for example, yeah, yeah, Unfortunately. So, for example, in when we tested some snails that we have in the Great Barrier Reef, what we found was that when those were placed into the elevated carbon dioxide conditions, um, many of them did not escape a predator. And for those that did, they took longer to make that decision to escape. And they didn't move as far away.
1: So, so <laughs> it's kind of just... Replay that one. So, so the behavioural change seems like a pretty fundamental behavioural change. The kind of thing, oh, I better run away. There's a predator. I better run away. We're talking. We're not just talking about do I want to, you know, eat this kind of food or move over here. It's actually a life and death decision type behaviour.
3: Yes, that's right. So, <sighs> so real behaviours that are critical for survival and obviously the continuity of the species are those ones that. Um, are being affected by ocean acidification and it's not just the that, that one level actually if we test the predator species so for a squid for example they have a kind of middle role in the marine food web so they're both they hunt and they're also preyed upon by other animals and we can see that their behavior changes as well so for example for their hunting behaviors their predatory behaviors we see that some of them will choose not to try to attack the prey even though they're all equally hungry and if they do choose to attack they will take longer to initiate that attack and they will attack from further away so we can see that those kinds of changes again are likely to be negative.
0: Hi, and it's Bron. I'm just wondering, with these behavioural changes that you're talking about, is that... Do you get the feeling, um, you know, from what you're observing, that it's a direct consequence of the physical changes that are happening to to the animals? Or do you think maybe it's something else? Is there something that's a bit more uh, complicated going on?
3: It seems to be different. So it seems that we have the physical changes on one hand, and then the behaviour changes that can occur um, separately. what we think is happening is that with changes in the chemistry of the seawater, so in this case an increase in acidity, animals that live in seawater all the time are changing their internal conditions to help buffer this. But when they do this, what's, what's happening is that there are differences in the way that their nerves function. So because they've actually had to change some of their, uh, their pH balance inside their bodies, we're getting nerves that would normally be inhibitory and normally make them do normal, sensible behaviours. We're seeing that what is likely to happen is that when we have increased carbon dioxide, this normal inhibitory behaviour stops and the behaviour is becoming excitatory. So what I mean by that is that Normally, these animals wouldn't undertake risky behaviours, like staying near a predator or not moving away as quickly. But when we have this elevated carbon outside, that's exactly what's oh happening. It's a bit like alcohol in humans, so it's a bit like humans being drunk my and taking risky behaviour.
1: Wow, it's, I, I was just picturing 22-year-olds at university doing stupid things, um, being drunk. The, that's, wow. Hey, we've, we've got so much. I, I know Rex and Bron and <laughs> myself have another dozen questions, honestly, so Anne, it's wonderful. And we haven't even got to adaptations. Uh, but I just wonder, very quickly, there is an example, I mean, I, the immediate and thought of course is aquaculture because we eat a lot of shellfish in this world and i'm wondering if maybe we can lure you back to have another conversation about aquaculture in the coming months
3: yeah okay sure
1: because i just i know there are stories of oysters in the us where there have been some adaptations i think to ocean
3: acidification is that right yeah, that's right. So the US is one of the places where they've already seen ocean acidification affecting some of the aquaculture industry. So on the west coast, where they have upwelling conditions, what's happening with ocean acidification is that they're already starting to see those conditions of water coming into the hatcheries that's acidic enough to affect their oyster juveniles. Wow. So okay. Those, we're gonna. They're I... getting
1: Can we get you, can we come in and talk about this? Because I think that'll be wonderful. We might do this in the next couple of months because I just think it's... Okay. I think just getting everybody to understand the poor cars Innovation Certification was probably enough this morning. It's amazing. Thank you so much for for filling us in this morning and um, we'll be in touch and we'd love to have you back in a couple of months.
3: Okay. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much. Dr Sue-Ann Watson there, who's a senior research fellow at um, James Cook University and a C- Queensland Museum senior curator for marine invertebrates. That is remarkable, isn't it, Tim?
0: Oh, absolutely fantastic. The, the The sort of work that it's critical, this work. And it's just going to become more critical as time goes on.
1: Five to ten years they've been studying this. Yet again, a wonderful segue there of musical types. That was Loive before that. She is a 22-year-old Icelandic music student. You can see her on Instagram. You can get about two tracks on Spotify. It's remarkable. It's, her name is actually spelt L-A-U-F-E-Y, but it's pronounced Loiwe. That's my bad way of mutilating Icelandic. Hey, Bron, over to you. He says, uh, trying to get you in the right thing. Here we go. Over to you now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I've got it all working
0: here. <laughs> am, am I? Can you hear me, Anne?
1: Beautiful. All wonderful. Excellent.
0: All right. 10 to 10. And, yes, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. <laughs> Here's a Sunday morning brain exercise. Picture Glenn Robbins' Russell Coit and now picture AFL and Essendon legend Terry Danaher. Now picture a cross between them. Now you have to multiply that times two, the second time being a cross between Russell Coit again and comedian Anthony Lemo Lehman. What you have is two goofy larrikins that are the unwitting stars of The Idiot's Guide to Anglin and Danglin. It's a new book by Drew Howell. It takes these two characters on some adventures through what is ultimately a satirical guide and a very amusing guide to fishing to tell us all it's all about it. It's with great pleasure now we welcome to Triple R author, Drew Howell. Good morning, Drew. Welcome to Triple R.
4: Oh, we got you on mute <laughs> still, I think, Drew. There <laughs> we, go. we go. Good morning, Brian and Anthony and uh, and Rex. How are you?
0: Great. Good,
4: Drew. Great for to having, having me on. Us.
0: Now, my first question for you, Drew, bookshops, right, they've been stacked with fishing guides since the dawn of time. This one's a bit different. Where did the idea for Anglin' and Dangling come from?
4: Yeah, I don't think they've quite seen one like this before. <laughs> um, this is uh, very much, as you said, in the Russell Coit sort of-esque uh, and, and possibly even a little bit of Forrest Gump there, the way the, the characters have sort of floated <laughs> in and out of real Australian sporting history. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it just came about everybody um, loves the notion of going fishing but um, and, and myself much the same. But uh, I, I found that um, when I do embark on a, on a fishing adventure, things always tend to go wrong. And it uh, and it ends up being more of a barrel of laughs, you know, than uh, than on the successful side. So uh, we thought there's, there's got to be a bit of a book in this. And um, so I said about creating some characters, uh, sort of lo- those lovable sort of Aussie larrikin style characters, um, you know, probably... Uh, Paying homage to sort of you know your Rex Hunts and your we've got <laughs> we've got Rex Hunter on board, but <laughs> uh, Rex Hunts and your ETS and and you know these sort of lovable characters that we've got to know over the years, uh, and that's I guess how it began yeah.
0: Yeah, E.T. for listeners who aren't familiar is uh, Andrew Eddinghausen, is that right?
4: Correct, Andrew Eddinghausen, yes, the uh, the great '80s uh, rugby league pin-up boy.
1: <laughs> There's so I much more he... you can say about that, Drew, but uh, you know, yeah, we'll probably yeah, leave yeah. that one there because we've got like kids listening. To...
4: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, um, now my character, um, Roy McCoy, who's played by Lemo, he was very much in the sort of uh, ET style, you know, very much a sex icon of the 80s. Um, and, and and if you see his mullet there, I think it's earlier on in the book, you'll, uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes,
0: indeed. Now, speaking of rugby league, you grew up in Orange, Drew, um, some 300 yes. kilometres from the ocean. And did you ever think you'd end up writing a book about fishing?
4: <laughs> no, I don't think anyone thought I would write a book about fishing, to be honest. Look, I'll... I'll I'll come clean. I'm not much of a fisherman. I'm certainly not a, <laughs> Shh, not a great fisherman. But, uh, yeah, I don't tell anyone. But I do have a penchant for the uh, Aussie, Aussie humour and Aussie comedy that we sort of grew up with. You know, I don't, I don't know if you ever recall or your listeners would recall um, Warwick Todd. Oh, it, it no. Was,
1: I'm not Are you UN. No, it, it, it rings a bell, but you're going to have to fill us in.
4: Uh, Warwick Todd. Warwick Todd was a character that was made up by um, Tom Gleisner, um, you know back in the day and, and, and it was a cricket, you know, Australian cricketer and he did the Warwick Todd tour diaries. Yes. Yes Yeah, Rex seems oh, to know oh, what what have I'm I talking done? about here.
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say, is there, does Murphy Hughes turn
4: up in the in your book? Oh uh, well, Merv actually does pop up a couple of times. Yeah, as does Rex. Merv was, was fantastic. Actually, I was very fortunate. to we did a little video promo for the book together, and and he, he was having a great you know look through it and having a great chuckle. And uh, he's a, obviously a big character of Australian sport, and so he um, straight away was on the on the the same page as it all. And um, but it's it's been an absolute ball. It was an absolute ball riding it. As I said, you know, with Merv, and I got in contact with Rex to ask for his permission, and he's sort of woven into um, into it a couple of times there. Um, he, he had a bit of a, a famous rivalry with uh, Roy McCoy for many years, um, so we had to get Merv uh, Rex's blessing to to be in the book, and he was great. And as you'd expect, absolutely larger than life when I approached him about it. Um, so it's very fortunate. Yeah, to meet to meet Rex.
0: Can we talk a bit about the difference between angling and dangling? Because you do actually define this in the book. What is what's the key difference between angling and dangling?
4: Well, look, you know, I, I always joke and say you're either an angler or a dangler, but um, but it's not actually true. You can you, a lot of people start as anglers and then as as you know they. they the the, the beers go down they slowly take up the traits of a dangler as the day sort of wears on and that's that's a little bit more you know asleep back in your chair with the rod perhaps with the line perhaps tied around your toe type of thing so that's Uh, dangling is it Yeah, right, yeah that's right and
0: anglers take themselves really seriously don't they
4: that, that, oh, anglers are very
1: serious, that's right. Whereas yes. danglers don't give a toss, is that the idea? <laughs> Pretty much. Right.
0: That's well, right. I mean, yeah. we haven't got a shop called the Complete Dangler, so that probably explains <laughs> the difference really between
4: the two. I think that's a different sort of shop, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Again, uh, audience people, please. <laughs> Sorry, yes. on here, come on.
4: Sorry, guys. Sunday morning, yeah,
1: Triple uh, R. yeah, I understand. <laughs> You've got to rein it in. Now, well, I wanted to
0: ask you, Drew, I grew up in a fishing family. Um, I'm also a fourth-generation bomber supporter on both sides of my family, and um, every holiday I had through my teens was spent surrounded by fishos, and I've got to say, reading through this took me right back to the mid-80s caravan park um, in Bermagui at the time of the annual Blue Water Classic. I'm pretty sure I saw Barry and Roy hanging out the front of the Horseshoe Bay Hotel when the easterly swells picked up and the fishing was off. (laughs)
4: Oh, look, a couple of reptiles like Barry and Roy, I'm not surprised, yeah. You, you <laughs> described yes, that, that, that so would've...
1: well, Bron. I can picture them sitting there.
0: I think they were mates of my dad's.
4: And, and they were um, going, And
1: they were going. Uh... yeah, mine was this big and it got away.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got to have a, you, yeah, don't, don't let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. Um, and, and certainly when there's a camera around, there's a, there's a chapter about this in the book actually, you know, t- taking the photo when there's a camera around don't be afraid to hem it up so i think um I think you're spot on there, Bron. I think it's the, the sort of characters who would have been uh, around in the 80s at the uh, – what was it, the Classic? The, the Blue Water Classic. The, the Blue Water Classic. Well, um, Terry's character, um, Barry Jeffries, actually speaking of, you know, iconic sporting events like the Blue Water Classic, he actually took out the uh, the thong-throwing thro- thong competition over in Wyala back in – I think it was around 1973. So that was something that really beefed up his um, – Sporting CV.
2: Speaking of cameras, should you use a wide fish eye lens for taking photos of fish? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I see the irony, yeah. I can't see why not. I've mean,
2: <laughs> got
0: so many more questions for you, Drew, and I'm conscious we're rapidly running out of time. I did want to actually just have a quick chat about the two characters. They're based on Terry Danaher and Lemo. They're shown throughout the book wearing various, you know, Hawks merch in the case of <laughs> Lemo and uh, obviously bombers for Terry Danaher. Um, and, uh, you know, mid-80s representing that peak rivalry between the bombers and the Hawks. How did, how did they end up They're Because they're genuinely their mates, aren't they? Or did um, the they Limo become mates and, through Limo the writing of
4: this book? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they know each other. Yeah, they do know one another. Um, look, they were both fantastic. Um, so I guess to, to, to take it back before that, I sort of, as as we, as we discussed, wanted to, to write this book and I had to have, you know, characters to, to bring the fun element out in it, like the Russell Courts, And so um, we sort of wanted them two to be 80s Australian iconic sporting legends, you know, who'd done everything. And so we made up these two characters and they were, they, yeah, they both played for or, or played for Essendon and Hawthorne, so that sort of brought in that 80s rivalry. Um, and, and they were both on the America's Cup, you know, in 1983, as the story goes. Um, Barry, of course, was the first, first um, ever full-time fisherman to be on a, an America's Cup crew. Um, yeah, very revo- revolutionary position on a sailing crew. Um, and, and going back to, yeah, the, so the Hawks... Um, Essendon rivalry, and it fit in beautifully. And that, then, when I set about, uh, whoop, are, we, are we getting bumped here? Yeah, I
0: think we are. <laughs> We're about to wrap up. We got out and show outro
1: starting in the at background.
0: ten
4: o'clock. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, when, when I said about yeah, you know, creating um, the, the story and the characters, it just worked out beautifully that it was Terry and Lemo, um, yeah. who who then became the characters, and you know, who had such an intimate relationship with Essendon, of course, with Terry and, and Hawthorne with with um, with Lemo. So it just it. it It
1: worked out well. Hey, Drew, it's a little known surprise, but Bron's a mad bomber supporter, I'm a mad Hawk supporter. The (laughs) rivalry's been going on since the 80s as well. (laughs) I only found
4: that out this morning. We've got about 30 seconds, guys. No, fantastic.
0: Let's wrap this up. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.